Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed Podcast. The last couple of months where we've all been isolated and quarantined and having to figure out what the world looks like in the middle of a, a pandemic. Um, one of the things that I'm reminded of is that notion of connectedness and the, the thing I've always admired about people from tougher backgrounds is often they're so much more interconnected uh, than we're told we're supposed to aspire to be, that we, we set up our colleges on this notion of independence um, and I think this pandemic is pushing us back towards remembering how interdependent we really are and how interconnected we really are. And I think it applies when we talk about being poverty informed on campus because it, it really applies to how we think of how we bring students into our space. You know, do we say you're lucky to be here and now you're on your own? Or do we move past even saying, hey, you're welcome here? To your wanted here and what does that look like in behavior and how do you change that how do you make students feel really seen and what would be the impact if you got it right so it got me thinking about something I wrote last fall pre-pandemic but it's about um, one of the sides of what I call my poverty informed triangle uh, and I thought I'd share it with you today uh, the article I wrote last October was called poverty informed practice in higher education a sense of belonging. One of the challenging things about leadership is it's not a do-it-by-yourself thing. Most of us who end up in positions with some influence made our way there in part because at some point in our career we were good at accomplishing tasks and projects. However, when we are asked to lead others, accomplishing tasks on our own isn't necessarily the appropriate skill set in many ways. So you have to develop this new skill set, one that allows you to help other people understand what you're trying to do, and then they embrace and execute it. It's an extraordinarily difficult change, and I think it helps explain why so many people struggle when we get into a leadership role. The tools in our toolbox, which worked so well before, no longer serve us. It can be very disconcerting, and on our worst days, it makes us want to walk away from what we are doing and retreat to what we know. Now, if this sounds personal, well, it is. Every career transition I've made has involved some level of dealing with this incongruity. And I think it's complicated for people like me who felt like outsiders early on, and truthfully always will. Now, I'm not sharing this to have you feel sorry for me and my career, I'm just fine. But I want to draw the parallel to the students and individuals we serve. Students in the crisis of poverty have an extensive set of tools they use to cross our threshold. But those tools don't always work in our colleges. So what do we do? As I've tried to boil down this idea of poverty-informed practice to something other folks can embrace and execute, three elements keep repeating. The idea of meeting basic needs, then creating a sense of belonging, and accelerating progress towards stability. I would never rank them because I think they're all interdependent. But today I'd like to talk about the importance of that sense of belonging, that sense of being seen. I would argue 
One of the consequences of pursuing college from the crisis of poverty is a feeling of not quite fitting in anywhere. On a personal level, this just makes sense to me. It's been a long time uh, since I really had to struggle financially or the memories of my family struggling financially when I was a kid um, are in the rearview mirror. And truthfully, our struggles were far less than many. But if I'm honest, the residue of feelings from those days persists until now. Every time I open up and share these feelings with students or colleagues who are or have been in the crisis of poverty, they can identify. This happens almost without exception. Think about that. It means students come to us with a belief the people around them don't really want them there. Our students are pretty sure they are imposters, and all too often, we inadvertently confirm those feelings. So how do we make sure they know they belong? How do we make sure they know they're wanted? In September, we had our first Student Success Day at Minnesota State College Southeast. I was a latecomer to the project because I'd only been at the college a month and it had been initiated by my predecessor. Our student services team took the lead in planning it. My role, truthfully, was limited to support, encouragement, and participation. No one was quite sure how it would go, but I'm pleased to say it was a hit at both of our campuses. Essentially, we shut down classes for a day and faculty, staff, and external partners created workshop opportunities for students. Our student clubs and leadership groups also provided learning opportunities, by the way, on things like food insecurity. And the afternoon was reserved for connecting with advisors. The sessions offered were kind of homegrown and wildly eclectic, which reflected the kind of grassroots nature of that day. There were financial aid and scholarship presentations, but we also had things like horses on campus to demonstrate equine massage. There were sessions on managing stress as a student, and there were sessions on tuning pan drums. Did I mention we have really unique and cool music programs at Southeast? There were lots of other sessions and activities, and as a relative newcomer to the college, I was able to see a thread that pulled it all together. My friend and mentor, Dr. Donna Beagle, talks frequently about identification theory as a tool for connecting with people in the crisis of poverty. My non-academic version of identification theory is that it's hard for people to hear you if they can't see something of themselves in you. Our eclectic sessions and informal atmosphere provided exactly that for our students. Students saw college staff in new ways. Students experienced sessions that connected with personal interests and students saw college staff as people who wanted them there with us. The college was making every effort to be us rather than be other. It was a pretty spectacular day. If you try to remember a mentor who made a difference in your life, they probably did lots of things. I've been lucky enough to have several good mentors, but they all had one characteristic in common. For me, that meant they created a sense of safety which was really another way of saying they made me feel like I belonged where I was. Now, if you accept the poverty-informed premise that we must love the students we have, not the ones we wish we had, how would you create the same experience for them? Would you be vulnerable enough to let them know a little bit about you in case they see themselves in your story? Would you fearlessly inventory your policies, practices, behaviors, facilities, and anything else you could identify to make sure there aren't messages of exclusion? This is the work it takes to begin to change our current outcomes and benefit our students, their families, and our communities. 
I want to end by acknowledging how difficult this work can be. In recent years, I have intentionally given up a lot of the professional distance I used to maintain, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. Let me be perfectly clear. We must all still be professional and ethical, but I think we have to be willing to let down our walls a little and let the students' stories into our world. Being connected to the why of the what allows us to persevere when student journeys are non-linear and on the days where our emotional investment leaves us in a place of vulnerability. Just this week, I had to deal with the fact a couple of students I had been pretty close to in my prior life and in my new one did things which were just not okay. Not only did that hurt me at a personal level, it made me fearful that it might lead to others thinking the work of including these students isn't worth it. That is the emotional risk of choosing to love the students you have and believing in them unconditionally. Sometimes it doesn't work out. I used to worry a lot more about these things, but in recent years, I've kind of channeled my friend Kara Crowley from Amarillo College, and my answer is, so what? We don't stop doing the right thing because someone else didn't. We don't assign one person's behavior to an entire group, or we certainly shouldn't. The work we're doing can be lonely and uncomfortable on those days. And make no mistake, there are people out there waiting for those moments of struggle to push you back to where you were. Can you imagine how the students feel in the same scenario? That's why creating a sense of safety and genuine belonging matters every day. That's why we do things alongside our students and not just on their behalf.